All right, let's pray together. Uh, Father in heaven, we uh, need you even now, uh, Lord, to use your spirit, use your word, and Lord, would you put those things together and cause transformation to happen in our lives. Lord, would you remake us into who you created us to be, uh, restore us, make us into your image. We need that. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, I'm good. Thanks, so. Um, uh, unless you've been under a rock, uh, you've probably heard about the Thai cave rescue, right? Um, I saw all these uh, headlines, and finally Justin said, man, have you read about that? And I was like, no, and he made me feel really stupid, so I read about it. And um, maybe I just did that to you. Um, so I, I started reading about this Thai cave rescue, and here's really what happened. Um, it's an amazing story. There, have been the, there are these 12 uh, Thai boys uh, and their coach. They were a soccer team, and... Uh, they had made it a practice to kind of wander back into this cave, and I don't know what they do. I don't know why the coach would let uh, these guys go back in there. If I were those parents, I'd be firing that coach a long time ago. Anyway, so they, they went back there, and they were gonna, it was kind of an initiation. They were going to write their names on the wall. And so they went way, way back in there, two and a half miles, in fact. And while they were two and a half miles back into the cave, a monsoon came in. And when the monsoon came in, uh, the cave began to flood. And so uh, people from all over the world, this international team of experts, both divers and um, cave specialists, uh, military personnel, uh, they all came in and they had to deliver them food. So what would happen is they would go way back in the the cave, give them food, uh, but they were trying to figure out what's the best way for us to get them out. It was easier for expert divers to go back in there than it was for 11 to 16 year old boys to get out, especially those who they couldn't swim. So they also had to get a, 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 a tube of air back there to make sure they had uh, appropriate levels of oxygen. And one uh, Thai Navy SEAL went back there uh, to give them air, and on his way out, his air ran out, and he died. His name was Saman Gunan. Why did he do it? Why did all these other people risk their lives in order to save these boys and their coach? Why did any of these sign up for such a precarious, dangerous task? Well, the easy answer is it was a cause of love. Uh, these boys and their coach, their lives were literally hanging in the balance, and they would have died if someone had not risked their life to bring them to safety. Now, I know this is an extreme example of love. It's inspiring, but even though it's inspiring, it might seem very distant from you, from your experience. But this story has something to do with us on two levels. On one level, uh, it has something to do with the way that we love people. See, most of us, uh, we're not going to love someone in such a way that's going to garner international claim. But we do have the opportunity to love people every single day. Our acts of service are likely much more mundane. They're much simpler. But they nonetheless are costly. The second thing it has to do with us, it has something to do with us because we were in much more dire straits than this Thai soccer team. You want to ask, how so? Well, the Bible tells us very frankly that we were in bondage due to our sin. We were eternally separated from God without any means to save ourselves. And that's way worse than being two and a half miles back into a cave that's flooding. And Jesus came back there, gave it all to rescue us out. So do you see it? Do you see how this story has something to do with you? This Thai cave rescue reminds us of God's love for us and our love for our fellow humanity. 
And the story of Ruth will do the same thing. You will see two very needy people and how God uses them to provide for their needs. So let's read Ruth 2 together. I'll make some comments along the way. Uh, Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech. That was her husband, Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth, the Moabite, said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him, in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said, Naomi said to her, Ruth, Go, my daughter. Now remember, uh, let me me do the family tree if you weren't here last week. Uh, You've got uh, the, the mom and dad. The mom and dad are Elimelech and Naomi. Elimelech and Naomi had two sons. Their two sons' names were Malon and Chilion. Malon married Orpah, Chilion married Ruth. All the men died. Elimelech died, and the boys died. And you've got Naomi and Ruth are left back in Moab. And Elimelech and Naomi are Israelites. The boys are Israelites. The women are Moabites. And the two women begged Naomi to go back with her to her homeland. When she says, hey, the famine's over. That's why they went to Moab. The famine's over. We're going back. She begs Naomi, Orpah to stay. Orpah stays. She begs Naomi, or Ruth to stay. Ruth doesn't stay. Ruth pledges herself to Naomi, and they go back. And when they go back, they have nothing. They don't got any men to provide for them. There's no children. There's no money. And so Ruth has got to go provide for her Naomi somehow. And what she does is sit. she goes to the fields and she gleans. All right, that's where we're at. All right, verse 3. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. And he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She's the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came, and she continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Let's pause there. So you've got kind of the foreman of the job. Boaz is, uh, owns the field. And Boaz comes to his foreman and says, who is this? And the foreman gives him this glowing report of what Ruth has done for Naomi and then how hard she's worked that day. All right, verse 8. Then Boaz said to Ruth, these are his first words to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you're thirsty, go to the vessels and drink that the young men, what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Boaz, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother and your native land and come to a people that you did not know before. So the Lord repay you for what you have done, and full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Verse 13, Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. 
verse 14, And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come here, eat some bread, and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers, and he passed to her roasted grain, and she ate until she was satisfied, and she had some left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her, and also pull out some from the bundles for her, and leave it for her to glean, and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening. And then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley, which is about three, we- three weeks' worth of food. She did three, work- three weeks of, uh, of food, which is about three weeks of work in a day. Ruth worked her tail off. All right, verse 18. And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her food what she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, What did you glean today? Meaning, oh my. That's what she was saying. And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she took her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, The man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, The man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. So did you catch that? Did you catch what just happened here? Uh, Ruth uh, went to a field of one of her relatives, and she didn't know it. And Naomi didn't send her there. She just happened to go there. Verse 21. And Ruth the Moabite said, Besides, he said to me, You shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young woman, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvest, and she lived with her mother-in-law. The word of the Lord. All right, if we were to look back, last week, we did all of chapter 1 last week, and the very last verse gives you a little glimmer of hope. The last verse of chapter 1 says the barley harvest had come to Israel. Finally, after all this famine, now they can, the, 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 um, barley has come. So, you know, things just got, the spiral in Ruth chapter 1 just gets deeper. Elimelech dies. The boys die. There's a famine. Naomi's got an awful attitude. Ruth is a Moabite. How in the world is she ever going to be accepted in Israelite society? It just goes farther and farther down. And finally, it turns up just a little bit. The downward spiral turns in that last verse and says, Barley has come to Israel. It's turned upward. See, we tend to view time as linear, from point A to point B, but it's actually more shaped like a J. It begins with life, it goes down into death, and then finally upward into resurrection. That's what the Christian life does, over and over and over again. It's um, uh, like uh, one of my girls said, uh, that Disney movies always are happy, sad, happy. It just goes like this. That's the way our lives go. That is the way the big story of the universe goes. It's a J-shaped curve. And when we understand this framework, what it does is it resets our expectations for what life's supposed to be like. We expect suffering to come because we know we're going to have to go down, just like Ruth and Naomi had to go down. We begin to embrace the death that the Father has put before us because we know that after the death will come resurrection. The resurrection only comes through dying. Resurrection does not come through fighting. And when it does come, we don't know when it's going to come, and we don't know what the shape of our resurrection is going to look like. But we do know that if we endure in the death that God has for us, we will experience resurrection. 
See, resurrection for Naomi and Ruth has now come. God's been orchestrating people, and he's been orchestrating their circumstances in the midst of their poverty, in the midst of their vulnerability, to bring them resurrection. Uh, my two points tonight are loving the poor and loving the vulnerable. Loving the poor is going to be about Ruth's love for Naomi, and loving the vulnerable is going to be about Boaz's love for Ruth. So let's look at uh, loving the poor. Two really two things under this. Uh, to love the poor is to be helpful. To love the poor is to be helpful. See, you can talk about love in a very interior way for a long time. But after a while, things get really complex. But if you begin to look at love on the outside with our hands, what that looks like, it's surprisingly simple. Ruth did something very concrete for Naomi. She gleaned the field. She provided barley for her. So Ruth was helpful. See, when Ruth goes out into the fields to get barley, what it would look like is that you would have men come through this row of barley first, and they would cut down the stalks, you know, low towards the ground. Then the stalks would be laying there on the field. The women would pick them up, and they, they would cut off the tops, cut off the heads of the barley, and gather those. That was the second round of people. The third round of people would be those who gleaned. These would be the poor. These would be the widow. These would be the sojourners would come through, and any of the heads of barley that had just fallen on the ground, they would pick up, and that's how they were provided for. And Ruth functions under all three of those gleaner categories. She is, a, she is poor, she is a widow, and she's a sojourner. But that did not keep her from being helpful towards Naomi. David Pallison, he's one of my favorite authors. Here's what he writes about being helpful. He says, to be helpful is to be free of messianic delusions, of pride, of condescension, of despair, of impossible burdens, of selfish withdrawal, Helpfulness is humble, caring, forgiving, and constructive in innumerable small ways. There's not a lot of drama in helpfulness, but helpfulness is the fabric of love. Helpfulness is love in action. It's the quiet doing that fits the needs around you. End quote. That's what love for the poor actually is, is being helpful. A uh, friend of mine this week, a pastor friend of mine uh, this week, had, was having lunch with him, and he told me uh, about mid, doing mission work in Africa. Uh, he had been sent by a donor to Africa to assess the needs uh, to, in the village that he was sent to and come back to the donor, and they could come up with a plan. So my pastor friend goes over there, goes to Africa, and the place where he went, they were accustomed to having Americans. Uh, they, knew, they had been around American missionaries and American Christians before, and the American Christians who had come before my friend, they came and they brought them clothes. They came and they did construction. But they never did come and ask, what, it is, what is it that you need? They just presumed, presumed they knew, and they did it. And they actually were, to some degree, helpful. But when my pastor friend, when he said that he asked that question, the Africans were utterly astounded. And they said, well, we'd like some chickens and pigs. If you give us chickens and pigs, we can have meat and we can have eggs and we can go to town and trade those for all the things that we need. Another person said, I, I'd, I'd really like a sewing machine. My pastor friend, sewing machine? What are you going to do with a sewing machine? Your village don't even have electricity. And she said, you know, the kind with the pedal. She said, because if, if that happened, then I could teach everybody around here how to fix their clothes. We wouldn't need, any, we wouldn't need them as often. So do you see the difference in the approach? 
One uh, has the messianic delusion of, I'm going to come in and save you. The other comes in and is much less presumptuous and asks a question. So to be helpful for the poor is not first and foremost about saving them. It's first and foremost about being humble. So humble that you're willing to be helpful in innumerable small ways. Look at the second thing that we see about what it means to love the poor. To love the poor is to be personal. To be personal. It's really easy uh, in loving the poor to be impersonal. Especially when the people with resources are the ones doing the loving. See, you, you can serve uh, in a volunteer way. You can uh, serve through your paid job with the poor and remain disconnected in a relational sense. You can give money to the poor and have no friends who actually are poor. But it's impossible to love in general, and that's what Ruth teaches us. She didn't just love poor people in the abstract. She loved Naomi, who was actually poor. Same for us. We have to love someone, some poor person, somewhere. I ran across a, a quote by David Brooks, the well-known New York Times columnist, and he says this. Uh, college graduates are told to follow their passion, chart their own course, march to the beat of their own drummer, follow their dreams, be themselves. He says this, but this talk is of no help to the central business of adulthood. He says the central business of adulthood is finding serious things to tie yourself to. He said most successful young people don't look inside and then plan a life. They look outside, find a problem which summons their life. They're called by a problem, and the self is constructed gradually by their calling. See, this is what Ruth did for Naomi. Naomi was her calling. She wasn't called to be a farmer. She was called to be helpful and to get personally involved and to solve the problem that was Naomi. I don't know if that's what she was passionate about. I don't know if she'd go to college to be a social worker. But her personal commitment to Naomi is what drove her life at this juncture. And this personal commitment had to be really tough. Because you see who didn't go harvesting that day? <laughs> Naomi. It would really bother me if I were Ruth. Naomi's not ancient here. Scholars think that Naomi is 45 to 50. But look at Ruth. She doesn't look at the fairness of love. She doesn't look at the way Naomi treats her because the way Naomi treats her has nothing to do with how Ruth is committed to treat Naomi. It's a one-way love. And it's this kind of love that cleans out all of our wrong motivations for love because we get nothing in return except more work. But often our difficulties, especially with loving the poor, come when we react to the personal constriction that accompanies our love. We're willing to love the poor at a distance. We're willing to love them with our politics, maybe even with our money. But to really love the poor requires our love to become personal. See, that's loving the poor. It's dynamic between Ruth and Naomi. But now let's look at the love between Boaz and Ruth. Now, if you know the story, you know that Boaz and Ruth, they get you know, married and have babies at the end of the book. I hate to give it away. But right here, there's no romance involved. All you really see is Boaz's character put in front and central. Because the true measure of a man is really how he treats women. That's what we see here. So love in the vulnerable. 
See, Ruth is in a very different position than Naomi. Ruth has suffered, no doubt. She's lost her husband. But her suffering has not plunged her into the depths of darkness that it has Naomi. See, Naomi is so crushed that we have to consider her to be poor on every front. But for all of Ruth's gumption, for all of her character, for all of her initiative, she's still vulnerable. And we can learn from Boaz what it means to love those who are open to harm. One of the ways we love the vulnerable is that we see them. We see them. It's a miracle that Boaz saw Ruth here. You see, he knows her. He said, who is this woman? Who does she belong to? See, Boaz, is a, he's used to being the one who's seen. You notice if you, when we read chapter 2, all eyes torn, turned towards Boaz when he came out to the field. We see, we see later, when we get into chapters 3 and 4, that when he walks into the city gates, the elders, their gaze goes towards Boaz. But Ruth, on the other hand, she's almost invisible. Ruth's disconnected, she's poor, she's female, and she's mobite. Boaz is connected, wealthy, male, and an Israelite clan leader. So you would think that even if Boaz noticed Ruth, what he would notice is a Moabite poor woman gleaning grain. But he didn't stereotype her. Instead, he let her deserved reputation overrule his cultural prejudices. Man, how difficult is that? How easy is it to see someone and begin to make inferences about their character? See, seeing people means not to look through them, not to look over them, not to look around them, but to look at them. And to notice that persons are more than the sum total of what we can see. They're more than their age. They're more than their gender. They're more than their race. They're more than their appearance. To look at someone requires that we see these complex, nuanced intricacies that have been formed by their stories. The stories that God, the sovereign, good God, has written in their lives. That's what looking at someone really means. And that's what Boaz does here. He looks at her. Even though she's vulnerable. And to love the vulnerable also means that we have to become humble. It means we have to look at him, but it means we have to become humble too. So you've got Boaz's status. He's this powerful Israelite, wealthy man. And he's not going to ignore all these statuses. Instead, what Boaz is going to do is he's going to leverage his status, not for his benefit, but for Ruth's. Look at verse 8. In verse 8, we see that Boaz provides for Ruth economically. Verses 14 to 16, we see that Boaz provides for Ruth economically. And then in verse 9, look at verse 9. We're going we're to look at this part. He says, have I not charged the young men not to touch you? You know what he's saying. He's saying, I'm protecting you from potential sexual assault. He's also saying, this powerful man is saying that all his wrath is going to come down on any guy who gets close to Ruth. What he's saying is, you mess with Ruth, you mess with me. So here, here we have, we got Boaz, he's leveraging his money, he's leveraging his power to love the vulnerable. In chapter 2 alone, he gives 14 commands to care for Ruth. So by using his power for love, what Boaz has to do is he's been drawn down into Ruth's need. That's what humility does. It just keeps getting lower. But becoming humble, it's really scary for us, isn't it? Doesn't it arouse fear within you, especially when you're in a place of influence? Because if you're a person of resources, we all are, and we start leveraging for the vulnerable, 
you begin to have thoughts that I would have had if I were Boaz. If I were Boaz, I'd be thinking, gosh, if I do this for Naomi, I'm going to have a line of sojourning women out the back door tomorrow morning. And they're going to expect the same treatment. This would be a very unwise precedent for me to set. That would come from a place of fear. Another fear that if I were Boaz, what I would have is that I would be afraid that my status would disappear and I'd be just like everybody else in society if I were to stoop to Ruth's level. See, when we elect to love the vulnerable, whether it's a child, whether it's someone with a disability, whether it's the elderly, whether it's the sick, we go on and on and on, we fear too that we're going to go unnoticed. See, it's true. When you're humble, people don't notice you. But if you choose to be humble, you will go unnoticed, but there's going to be two benefits coming your way. The first one is deep soul rest. See, once you get over the shock of loving the vulnerable, the low place becomes a place of soul rest. You, you begin to notice that part of the reason that you've been so restless is because your heart has been seeking a position in society where you get noticed. Your heart's consistently restless to maintain this status until you start loving the vulnerable and you get down on their level and all of a sudden, it doesn't matter because you found rest. The other thing you find uh, when you become humble and you love the vulnerable is that God dwells with you. Psalm 34, 18 says, The Lord is close to the brokenhearted. And he saves those who are crushed in spirit. So do you want to experience being close to the Lord? Do you want to be saved from your self-interest, your self-deceit, and your self-promotion? You can be brokenhearted, and you can be crushed in spirit, or you can enter into someone else's broken heart. You can enter into someone else's crushed spirit. And this is what Boaz does. He chooses humility by loving the vulnerable, by loving Ruth. So when you hear about this Boaz character, you begin to smell Jesus. Can't you hear echoes of Jesus when you're looking at Boaz's love for Ruth? Don't you see the family resemblance of Jesus and Boaz? What's what's intended? See, Boaz is Ruth and Naomi's redeemer. To be a redeemer, to be this kinsman redeemer, it's a provision given in God's law. And the way it goes is that if, if your husband died and you were left a widow, you were left an orphan, uh, someone who is related to your husband would come in and take care of you. They had that responsibility. If they didn't take that responsibility, it was against the law. And the person who would take care of you was called your kinsman, because they're your relative, redeemer. See, Jesus has come in and he's become your kinsman, redeemer. Now, your life story might not include the death of a spouse, the death of a child. You might not be a part of a racial minority. You might not be financially poor. But there is something painful in your story that has left you in a position that stirs the pity of Jesus. What's that wound for you? In what way does Jesus need to come in and take care of you? What specific place in your life does he need to redeem? See, Christianity is so much more than a set of beliefs that creates a system of doctrine for us to ponder. 
Christianity is so much more than a, a subculture, a religion, with its own unique norms and values. Christianity is about so much more than heaven. Christianity is about a person. It's about a Redeemer. And His name is Jesus. This Jesus came from heaven. He leveraged all His power, all His resources to rescue you. He crawled way back into the cave and He died so that you might live. You were dead in your transgressions and sin. I was too. And He's made us alive through His life, His death, His resurrection. That's redemption, friends. And we all need it. You know, this word redeem in the Old Testament, what we see here in Ruth, is used 50 times in the Old Testament. 50. 30 or 18 times it's used of God towards people. You can do math, maybe. 50 minus 18 equals 32. So 32 times it's used in another way. The other way that the word redeem is used is for people redeeming people. See, we need to drink at the well of God being our Redeemer in Christ, but we also need to drink at the well of that redemption flowing through us to others. So who are the poor that you need to be helpful towards? Are you willing to connect a relationship to the help that you offer? Who are the vulnerable in your life? Who do you need to look at instead of around, over, under, or through? What would it look like for you to choose humility so that you might leverage the influence, the power, the resources you have for the powerless? See, brothers and sisters, redemption's in the air when we get in Ruth 2. Resurrection is coming. And for you and me, it's sure. Let me remind you that what happens in your life aren't just these, this compilation of isolated moments. But what happens in your life is a trajectory. It's a J-shaped trajectory. It takes us down into the death of Jesus so that we might rise again. That we might rise again to new levels of obedience, new levels of life, new levels of vitality that you and I never dared imagine. Because Jesus has redeemed us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray this would be uh, a word uh, that you would use uh, to bring to our minds again and again and again. Lord, I pray you would apply this in very specific ways. Lord, I pray that we would not stand over your word and say, did I like this chapter or not? Lord, I pray that we would stand under your word and say, Lord, what is it that I need to eat from this chapter? How do you want to feed me? Oh, Lord, apply your grace to our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.